0: Good morning, everybody. Um, it's so fabulous to be learning with all of you. We want to thank Micha for being with us from our beloved Eretz Israel. I want to thank Amy and Brian for uh, you know, creating this very special opportunity and doing the technology. I want to thank all of you for joining us. Micha, we're going to just jump right in. You've been talking about the ideas behind a Catch 67 to Temple Emanuel for years. And at the specific angle this morning, uh, really focuses on the question of ethics, the morality of shrinking the conflict. Is it ethical to shrink the conflict? Um, many of the people on this call, and I know you yourself, have heard Danielle Hartman and Yossi klein Halevi and Alana stein their podcast on the morality, the ethics of shrinking the conflict. Um, and I guess what I want to do is tee up your conversation with us by surfacing that voice which is is it, it does this category have ethical integrity uh, shrinking the conflict uh, given what's happening on the ground in Israel and to kind of tee that off, um, I just wanted to share uh, the first paragraph of a piece that came out last week I don't know if our colleagues who are on the call have heard it or read it but this is a piece by Peter Beinert and um, He writes on November 11th, last Thursday, and I'm just going to read his first uh, paragraph. He's very negative on the concept of shrinking the conflict, and he's negative on it for for ethical reasons. And here's what he writes. I'm just quoting him. On October 22nd, Israel's defense ministry outlawed six prominent Palestinian human rights groups. Two days later, Israel's housing and construction ministry announced plans to build more than 1,000 300 new homes for Jewish settlers in the West Bank. The day after that, Israeli troops reportedly stood by as settlers attacked a member of Rabbis for Human Rights who was helping Palestinians gather olives, one of more than 58 attacks on Palestinians and their supporters during the October olive harvest. On October 26th, Israel's public security minister banned a festival in an East Jerusalem church, thus signaling his intention to prohibit almost all Palestinian cultural events in East Jerusalem, according to Haaretz. Um, So the question is, if all that is happening on the ground, what does it even mean to talk about shrinking the conflict? So welcome, Micha, and thank you.
1: Hey, Rabbi, how are you?
0: Good, so good (laughs) to see you. And thank you for helping us wrestle with these very significant issues.
1: Yes, so I want to give you a very, very broad picture, and I will address Doniel Hartman, and I will address Peter Beinhart. I want to look at this in a larger narrative, larger perspective, if that's okay with you, Rabbi. By all means. Okay, so I just want to very, very briefly refresh our minds. What does shrinking the conflict actually mean? I want to use two analogies. One, let's think about the conflict like we think about any other problem that we have. Because it's weird that we think about the conflict in a different way than we think about almost all our problems. Like when it comes to car accidents. So no one wants to end car accidents. I didn't hear anyone that wants to end car accidents. But even if there was an idea, a great plan, a grand utopian plan of a world with no car accidents, by the way, maybe the automatic cars will bring that. Maybe, okay, let's say we have this grand utopian plan to end car accidents. And then someone says, you know, it's impossible to end car accidents. It's impossible. The alternative to that is not ignoring car accidents. And if somebody had a utopian plan to end crime, the alternative wouldn't be to ignore crime. Those are not the only two options. When we think about crime, we ask, how do we shrink the amount of crime? We think about car accidents. We ask, how do we shrink the amount of car accidents? When it comes to conflict, for some reason, our minds are trapped in a false dichotomy. Either we end the conflict, and if that's not possible, let's just ignore the conflict, which is the BB paradigm of managing the conflict, freezing the status quo, keeping things the way they are, and shrinking the conflict. Actually, so if you notice, if we're, if we're trapped in a false dichotomy, so our market of ideas is suffers from a poverty where there is an idea lacking, and it's such a simple idea. So it's not a ground- groundbreaking idea at all. It's to think about the conflict like we think about other problems. We don't try to end them and we don't try to ignore them. We try to shrink them, dramatically shrink them. That's all we try to achieve. Now when it comes to shrinking the conflict, why is it hard to shrink the conflict? Because we have, there is a tension between two values. And let me just try to offer you now a different analogy a COVID analogy. Um, I think um, I might be wrong here. There weren't, but I think there weren't many countries that said we, COVID is a bad thing. People are dying from COVID. So let's end COVID. Let's do everything we can that COVID will vanish. I think New Zealand had that policy and Australia had that policy among Western democracies. I think when you have a digital dictatorship like China, it's different. I don't think wanna, but, um, um, And by the way, did it work for Australia and New Zealand? I don't think so. They couldn't end COVID. But okay, but you can't end COVID. If it's impossible to end COVID right now, this year, does that mean we're ignoring COVID? Absolutely not. The policies of all governments is to try to find sophisticated ways. We can't end COVID. We'll try to shrink COVID to what size? To the size that will enable us to live with it. COVID is also a very powerful analogy. Why? Because there's always a price you pay to shrink COVID. It's an economic price. You shrink COVID to a size you can live with it by shutting down. By the way, is your, is your synagogue open these days? All right, I'm happy for you all. I'm happy. Shabbos, the were davening? I'm so happy for you all. Great. So, so, um, so the easiest way to, to, to shrink COVID is to shrink the economy right, is to sabotage the economy. So Israel, the first three waves of COVID, it was, so Netanyahu said, okay, let's shut everything down and you're in lockdown and the economy suffers severely from that policy. Um, now the big question, by the way, Israel in the fourth wave of COVID, the Delta wave, the policy was the following, how can we shrink COVID without damaging economy? What's the maneuver that enables us to shrink COVID without damaging the economy. And this is a guiding analogy, which I find enlightening. What's us bring us to the conflict. We can't end the conflict. Does that mean we're ignoring it? No, we have to shrink it to a size that we can live with it, um, but here's a problem. Now, now, when we speak now on practical terms, the conflict is made out of two problems, security and occupation. When I say occupation, I mean a military regime controlling civilian population. I don't mean ca- occupation of land, I mean occupation of people. Now, here's the problem. Just like in COVID, we think we're trapped in a zero sum game, That the only way to fight the, um, uh, the COVID is to damage economy or you want to protect the economy and then COVID goes wild, like those are the two options. So we're living in a false way of thinking many times that the only way to protect Israelis is to overcontrol Palestinians. Right. You achieve security for Israelis by occupation of Palestinians. But we can't, even if we can't end occupation and keep levels of security up, we can shrink occupation and keep levels of security up. So here's the, so it's not a plan to shrink the conflict. It's a maneuver, just like When it comes to COVID, we have to be very smart and sophisticated and shrink COVID without damaging economy. When it comes to the conflict, can we shrink occupation without damaging security? So that's the goal of a maneuver to shrink the conflict. Shrink the amount that Israel controls the Palestinians without increasing the amount that Palestinians can threaten Israelis. So it's a perfect COVID analogy. And that's why I think post-COVID, our mind is trained to think in a way and you know, COVID trains our mind to know two things. Some problems you can't end, but you can't, but that doesn't mean you ignore them. And two, shrinking a problem, how do you do that? Without creating another problem. In COVID, it's health versus versus economy when it comes to the conflicts, occupation versus security. Okay, so that's my guiding analogy. Now let's take this to, I want to start with Dunil Hartman's critique of this. Dunil Hartman's critique is that. If Israel does real steps to shrink the amount that Israel controls the Palestinians without increasing the amount that Palestinians can threaten Israelis, a move like that will make Israelis feel comfortable. And as a result, morally indifferent to the suffering that's being caused by the conflict. Right? That's Daniil Hartman's problem. Like shrinking the conflict means shrinking our awareness of the conflict. We will just we'll shrink the conflict, then we'll shrink the amount that we care about the conflict. So, okay, that's Daniel Hartman's. I want to start with that, and then later will move to the hard, tougher critique of Peter Beinhart. Okay, Rabbi. Okay. So let's start with, um, with, with the question is, to strengthen the conflict, is a technique for Israelis. And by the way, Peter Beinhardt said the same. We do that and then we feel comfortable with ourselves and we won't be struggling ethically with the conflict. Well, here's something that Peter, here's something that we have to understand. Shrinking the conflict won't make Israelis indifferent towards the conflict. You know why? Israelis are indifferent towards the conflict. We already are. Now, the biography of Israeli indifference towards a conflict has many parts, many stories. Shrinking the conflict is not going to make us indifferent. It's going to awaken us from our indifference. Let me try to explain this point. It's the other way around. Let me try to explain this point. Israelis are indifferent towards the conflict for a few reasons. Here's one of them. They're paralyzed. You see... I want to quote Moshe Halberta, had a great observation. He said, for many years, for many years, like in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the beginning of the, of the 21st century, you meet an Israeli and you ask him or her, hey, why don't you guys have a constitution? Like Israel doesn't have a constitution. The answer would be, you're right, we should work on that. First we we'll end the conflict, then we'll take care of constitution. Yes, ask Israelis, hey, why are the gaps between the wealthy and the unhealthier? So you're right, let's take care of that. You know what we'll take care of that? The day after we saw the conflict. Hey, why do Orthodox rabbis control Judaism in Israel? Oh, that's terrible. We should take care of that. Oh, why don't Haredi, why don't Old Orthodox go to the military? Oh, you're right, you know what? We'll take care of that after we solve the conflict. And as a result, the conflict was holding all our problems as hostages. That was the main thing. The conflict hijacked our political attention and our political imagination. Something very big happens around, I think the the moment is 2009, 2010, 2011. Remember the summer of 2011? Summer of 2011, hundreds of thousands of Israelis go to the streets, live in tents, and they start yelling and shouting that people want social justice. Ha'am, rot, doresh. We want total justice. Remember those protests? Very powerful protests. Those are protests that we didn't see in Israel for decades because the conflict was channeling towards it all of our political passion. When there were big protests where they are about against the disengagement from Gaza or for disengagement from Gaza, against Oslo or for Oslo, against pe- against evacuation of, of settlements or pro-peace, like the conflict-generated political passion. And then suddenly, people care about the price of cottages. <laughs> and by the way, prices, you know, and, and prices of real estate, like those become bigger issues. Now, there's irony here, and here's the irony. We always thought, We'll address those problems once we solve the conflict. But Israelis started caring about those problems, not when we solved the conflict, but when we started ignoring the conflict. Israelis became indifferent and they became indifferent. I have, by the way, a podcast in Hebrew where i try to describe how we became indifferent. But just in a nutshell, after the second Intifada, after the hopes for peace collapsed, Most Israelis, this is how they feel. If we stay in the West Bank, we're risking our future. We're risking our national majority. If We leave the West Bank, we're risking our future. We're risking our national security. So if I'll be blunt, we're screwed if we stay in the West Bank, we're screwed if we leave the West Bank, what do we do? Why is cottagey so expensive? (laughs) Why don't ultra-orthodox go to the military? What? Yeah, so we changed, like, because we became so, because the conflict became so, because of the catch, the catch 67, right? There's a problem, the only solution for the problem increases the problem. Because of the catch, we became paralyzed. Because you became paralyzed, you became indifferent. Shrinking the conflict is an attempt to address all the Israelis that stopped caring. And say so that you stopped caring because you feel there is nothing we can do. So if we ignore the problem, maybe the problem will somehow ignore us. You know how little kids are, you close your eyes maybe. Shrinking the conflict is addressing them and saying, listen, there is room for you in this conversation. There is language for you to use. There is, there is to come back into this conversation. I'm not talking right-wingers that say, um, staying in the West Bank is utopia, leaving it is catastrophe. We don't need new language for them. They're in the conversation. Hardcore left-wingers that say that leaving the West Bank is not dangerous at all. It's just a paranoia of right-wingers. We don't need language to bring them in this conversation. They're already there. The paralyzed Israelis, the confused Israelis that responded to their own confusion by developing indifference They're the ones we need back. And the alchemy is the following move, rabbi. It's transforming their confusion into pragmatism. Right now, their confusion turned into indifference. We need to confuse, to transform their confusion into pragmatism. Let's start speaking about this. Okay, we're not gonna end the conflict. It's not gonna happen. Let's shrink it. What are the steps? Let's argue about the steps. What are the kind of moves that will increase Palestinian self-governance without decreasing Israeli security? What are the moves? If Palestinians are now enjoying 30 points of self-governance, can we go them take them up to 60 to 70 and Israeli security stay in the level of 80? Can we do that? Now I feel, and I feel Israelis that hear and learn and think of shrinking the conflict, that brings the confused Israelis back into the conversation. It turns their confusion into pragmatism instead of indifference. So here's my answer to Daniel Hartman I love the podcast, I really love the podcast. I thought it was a great conversation between him and Yossi Klein-Halevi. Shrinking the conflict cannot shrink our indifference. It can't, it can't. We're so freaking indifferent already, where am I? <laughs> yes, the question is, I think shrinking the conflict, one of the main, the purpose of shrinking the conflict is to crack the indifference. To say, come back into the conversation. There is room for you. There is room for new ideas. So this new idea, yeah, breaking the false dichotomy of ending the conflict versus managing the conflict. This new idea, I think, has the power to break Israeli indifference and bring many, many indifferent Israelis back into this conversation to care about this issue. Okay, so that was that was Dunil Hartman. Now I want to just go to the um, the uh, more harsh, harsh ethical pathos of of uh, of Peter Beinhart, Okay. When we think about ethical dilemmas, when there's one value that you believe in, and it doesn't, there's not, it's, there's no value that you know that's in tension with it. That's very, very easy. The problem is when we take big ideas and we implement them. There's always tension between values that we believe in. I'll give you an example. Um, in Israel, there's this very big debate between, and I know also in the United States, between democracy. And liberalism, in the sense that democracies, like the government, has to represent the will of the people. Liberalism is about protecting human rights, and that's why we impose, we you know, boundaries on governments. They can't implement the will of the people completely because of human rights. Now, how much do you do that? Right? There's a balance there. We want the will of the people to be expressed. We want human rights to be protected. And there's, a, and how do you find the right balance? I'll move on to another dilemma. Um, we believe in liberty, we believe in equality. The problem is when the government intervenes to create more equality, there's less liberty. When the government stays out, stays out of, the, of the markets, we might have much more liberty. Everybody could pay their workers whatever they want and we're all free, but there's no equality, right? We want both liberty and equality, but there's a tension between them. How do we balance that attention? Now, I think any ethical dilemma is about balancing Values that somehow conflict each other, and we could go on and on. You know the famous Mish- maybe you know the, the famous Mishnah. There is a big question between a disagreement between Beit Chamai and Beit in Masechet Shabbat. And, and here is a question. Somebody goes, Here is a halachic question. Okay. Someone goes to a wedding, and um, um, I'm thinking he bride and groom, right? So um, the groom asks asks him, "What do you think of the bride?" And he takes a look at her, and he knows her, and he she doesn't think she's for him. What is he supposed to say one minute before the chuppah? <laughs> so here's what Beit Chaim says. He says the truth, whatever it is, as harsh as it is, and in Hebrew it's extremely not politically correct. Like if you feel like she's really, really not for him. You say it. You know why? Because you always have to say the truth. You know what Betulah says? Betulah says you lie. You lie through your teeth. You tell him that she is the most amazing person you've ever known and ever seen in your life, and she's exactly for you, and she's your cosmic, your cosmic shido. How do you say shiduch? Your cosmic. Way. And that's it. That's what you do. Now, here's if we like try to take this disagreement between Betulah and Shammai. There's two values here: the value of shalom, shalom bite bringing Shlom Bayt is an ancient Jewish value speaks about, strengthening other people's relationship It's something that Jews are supposed to be, care about. Saying the truth is a value. What happens between truth and Shlom and strengthening relationships are conflict with each other? How do you balance that? Beit say you sacrifice the truth for peace. Beit Shammai say you sacrifice peace for the truth. But it's just like liberty and equality the will of the people and human rights truth and and peace they contradict each other and I want to just bring this all back and, and how do you balance it and I think any ethical conversation that doesn't ask how do we balance values that we implement them they contradict each other is not a serious ethical it's a infantile conversation it's not a serious conversation it's infant I don't want to sorry I'm not calling anyone infantile I'm not going anywhere from that, okay? I'm just saying that in real life, when you implement a value, it might contradict a value that you believe in. And here's what it looks like here keeping Israelis safe. For some reason, this is wrapped up in language like security. Palestinian human rights, that's wrapped up of language of morality. I think that's false. They're both moral values both of them. Risking Israelis? Is that ethical? Is that ethical? Yes. Let me just give you an example. Let's say being on time for a meeting, yes, is a value. And keeping my children safe is also a value. If I would tell you that I drove, um, I'm thinking in Hebrew, 100 miles an hour, not to be late, because I'm so ethical, because I want to be on time. I have the ethics of being on time. I think, Rabbi, you would say, Micha, you are unethical. Because in order to, to, I don't know, implement the value of being on time and having, I don't know, manners and not being Israeli and late all the time, in order to protect that value, you risk your family. Obviously, that's not the right, I think it's a false moral judgment. Now, if it's true, if it's true, the withdrawal from the West Bank would risk 5 million Israelis living in the Tel Aviv area. Is that a ethical choice or an unethical choice? Well, here's the thing. Staying in the West Bank is unethical because it means having a military regime controlling civilian population. Leaving the West Bank is unethical because it means we're risking Israeli population. What do you do? By the way, no one yet figured out the way out of the conflict between liberty and equality when it comes to the capitalism socialism dilemma, right? No one figured out what's the right formula of not a line versus keeping a couple happy. Like we didn't figure that out yet, but we understand that we have to somehow. But so here's my only formula. Thinking about security, is, security is, not a, is not an idea that we have to, I don't know, that, we, that, that somehow crushes an ethical value. Because security itself is an ethical value. Not controlling the penalty is an ethical value and it's a very messy world and we can't have hundred percent security for us and zero percent i think we can't have hundred percent security for us and zero percent of control over them but here's the thing what if it's possible i'm saying hypothetically if the amount of just let's use numbers just so we can imagine this if the amount of security that israelis are enjoying today on a level of 80 and the amount of of um when I say occupation, I mean military regime controlling civilian population. The amount of occupation that Palestinians are suffering from, let's say, is 80. If there's a way to shrink the amount of occupation from 80 to 20, and security is staying at 80, isn't that the most ethical thing we can do? Isn't that? Or do we think we can live in a world where, there is, where we see security as a non-ethical criteria? Or it's an ethical criteria, ethical value, balancing this value. This is why this is the the security conversation is not, doesn't challenge the ethical conversation. It has to be a part of the ethical conversation. Finally, finally, I want to take this one step forward. Why shouldn't we go for perfection? A peace treaty where there's two states living side by side, peace and security. That's all we want, right? Complete security for Israelis because there's peace. Complete liberty for, for, for Palestinians because there's a complete withdrawal. Why should not we go for perfection? Here's my problem. I think it's immoral to go for perfection. I'll tell you why. Because the kind of attacks of Peter Beinhardt's on shrinking of the conflict means the following. Now, I know Peter Bonfire, it, it's a complicated essay because he's also criticizing the government and not tricking the conflict. Maybe assuming that tricking the conflict enables the government to do things, to do certain things. I don't want to go into that. I don't think it's true, by the way, that they're using shrinking the conflict to do other things, which are. But but, um, but let's just go. I don't think it's true, I'm just in a matter, matter of factly. But what Peter Beinhardt and many other people on the left, that are attacking shrinking of the conflict. What are they actually saying? They're saying we should fight for a two-state solution. And any steps on the ground that transform the lives of Palestinians is just a way to normalize the status quo. So here's what they're actually saying. We'll do steps on the ground when we have a solution. That's what they're fa- saying. We'll do real steps on the ground. they will transform people's lives on the ground when we have a solution when we can form an independent Palestinian state living with peace and security next to an Israeli state, will we have a two state solution? Here's my fear, and it's more than a fear. If any step on the ground means that we do that as a part of a whole peace treaty, my fear is that peace that's not coming means no steps on the ground. We're sticking to the biggest weakness of the whole, of of the left, of that part of the left today. Is the following weakness. The myth of peace is freezing the status quo. It's wrong, to, it's true that the myth of sacred settlement is freezing the status quo. Of course that's true, but the myth of peace is freezing the status quo. Because if any step needs to be measured by the question, does this bring us closer to peace? Peace that's not coming means no steps at all on the ground. So can <laughs> understand what I'm saying? Some saying yes, when you fight, when if, if because you know, when you play the all or nothing game, you'll probably be stuck with nothing. And and how do I know that's true? Because that's been the truth on the ground for decades. The myth of peace is so there's actually an unspoken, unconscious alliance between the settler movement and the peace movement. They're both freezing the status quo. But if we're willing to give up on perfection, give up on perfection, and say so, you know it's not going to be perfect and there'll still be problems and still be things we feel uncomfortable with ethically. Then we could start transforming things on the ground, which takes me to one more observation. There is many ways to ask, how do you measure the ethics of a a step? And I wanna be just, you know, there is a line of Amos Oz, which I don't know if he knows this, this is really echoing not only John Stuart Mill, but it's also echoing the Buddha. saying the following. The way you measure an ethical step is the following. Does it make people suffer more or less? If it makes people suffer less, just do it. Just do it. Imagine if because of the fact that there's some elites that seek not less suffering but ultimate justice, because of elites that seek ultimate justice, we're not going to do steps that will shrink suffering is that an ethical position or an unethical position? I think we could dramatically shrink suffering without replacing it with worse suffering, because shrinking occupation without decreasing security means we're shrinking suffering without creating alternative suffering. What would happen if we risk security? Which takes me, Rabbi, I'm going on until you stop me. I'm going on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: You're, you're, you're. Yeah, muted. Yeah. So uh, Mika, thank you. Can I just jump in with a quick question? Can you just talk about address specifically the question of expanding settlements? Because that's a common denominator of Danielle's critique and Peter Beiner's critique, which is, I mean, it's hard to argue with anything you say. You're so eloquent, and and who 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 would oppose reducing suffering, right? That and, and reducing suffering is moral. Go for it. Yeah. So it's hard to argue with what you're saying, but could you talk about how does the Israeli government talk about um shrinking the conflict if in fact is expanding settlements at the same time and could you specifically point to talk about the the relationship between shrinking and expanding settlements
1: yes yeah, so first of all rabbi as you know i'm not the spokesman for the israeli government right i'm just a dude talking to you t- talking to all to all my friends on temple Emanuel. right i'm not the spokesman for the israeli government but um and I don't think there is this conspiracy theory that if the governments are speaking about shrinking the conflict that creates legitimacy to expand, I don't, I, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. But I don't want to represent, the government trying to represent my own thinking. In my eight steps to shrink the conflict uh, uh, um, essay, there is a settlement, I think, you know, um, um, building on settlement blocks and not building outside of settlement blocks makes a lot of sense. But the reason why it makes a lot of sense, by the way, I don't think the land is not ours. It's not, there's no like ethical claim here that we won't build settlements because the land is not ours. No, it's because the more you build outside of the blocks, the more it interferes in our ability to increase Palestinian self-governance. So I'll just be, you know, just quantify it. If we wanna create, if we wanna do three main moves, connect the Palestinians to themselves, connect that ecosystem to the world. So you have complete freedom of movement. If we could do that tomorrow morning, let's just do it. Let's not wait for peace. Let's not wait for two states. Let's just do it. If we could expand their zone so they could do their own planning and zoning, that would be amazing. That would shrink the lived experience of occupation, increase the amount of self-governance and not decrease the security. Let's just do it. More settlements blocks our ability to do that. That's all. That's why. That's why That's why I offer. I don't think this government is gonna go for that. I don't think this government can politically survive by doing that. But this is not the Michael Goodman government, right? I don't think it could survive by doing that. Um, um, you know what? I have no idea what their, what their settlement policy is going to be. But I think, I, I also wouldn't, Michal Goodman, I wouldn't declare freezing settlements outside the blocks. I would just turn the volume down, less building outside the blocks, more building inside the blocks, and then not focus on what we build in the in the for the settlements, and focus for how we connect the Palestinians. I think the language needs to be about connection. More connection, more movement, less conflict. Okay, Rabbi, um, I want to just to take this now in one step wider. I'm I'm not bringing oh this. Let me just check. Okay, we're good with time, right, Rabbi? We're good with time. I want to take this, I want to offer two more thoughts. One, just out of respect for Temple Emmanuel, I want to, and to you, Rabbi, I want to think about this theologically. Theologically, I want just to locate, to, to, to think about an Israeli problem and to think about it theologically. If we think about Israel in the next decade or two, Israel has not one challenge, but three challenges. That literally our future of the Jewish, Israel as a Jewish democracy is dependent on. One, um, in the ideal world, not controlling the Palestinians anymore. Two, which means higher levels of separation between Israel and the Palestinians, the Palestinians govern themselves, Israel doesn't govern govern them. So uh, I'm using the word separation. I know for Americans, it has bad association. I mean, not controlling their lives, meaning we separate ourselves from them. Second challenge, Integration of Israeli Arabs into Israeli society. Challenge number three, integration of Haredi Jews into Israeli society. Okay, so we have one challenge of separation and two challenges of integration. And we need to succeed in all three. Like a perfect Israel is in Israel, where Israel doesn't control the Palestinians on the one hand, we have separation from the Palestinians and integration of Israeli Arabs into Israel and Haredim into Israel. That would be a perfect Israel. Is that possible? No, I'll tell you why. Because every one of them suffers from a catch. The catch of separation is like this. We can't separate ourselves from Palestinians without being threatened by those Palestinians. That's my view. I wrote about this. I went, And you all heard me speaking about this and I can go. But you could have almost complete separation without risking Israelis, right? We know can we have complete integration of Haredim into Israel and Israel to stay a liberal country? I don't think so. Because complete integration might mean, um, like, Israelis is always afraid, I'll just give you an example, the more all-war go into the military, the more the military has to uh, cater to their needs and then there's questions, maybe maybe female soldiers can't serve here, maybe. So it may become, so it seems like, the more Haredim integrate into Israel, the less liberal Israel is. There's always a price, there's always a price. Let's think about the Arabs. Complete integration of, of Arabs into Israel, which would mean by the way, that they feel Israel is theirs just like it's the Jews. So Rabbi, does that mean we're changing Hatikva? You know, in hatikvah, what does it say? Nefesh, Yehudi Homiya. So it means even if we want complete equality, the symbolic goods of society, I hope that I'm translating from Hebrew, the symbolic goods of society are not distributed equally because the tikva is about is Jews, right? And uh, the, the flag resembles the Talit. So if you want complete integration, Israel can't be a Jewish state anymore. So here's what we want. We want Haradim to be a part of Israel and Israel to stay liberal. We want Aravim to be a part of Israel and for Israel to stay Jewish. We want Palestinians to be separate from Israel and for Israel to stay safe. I don't think it's possible separation of Palestinians and staying safe, integration of Haredim and staying liberal, integration of Arabs and staying Jewish. But you know what's possible? Almost complete separation and staying safe. Almost complete integration of Arabs and staying Jewish. Almost complete integration of Haredim and staying liberal. Let's go for the politics of almost, for the politics of it's not enough. For the politics of it's not perfect now i want to think (laughs) the politics of it's not perfect because if we're playing the game if it's not complete integration so no integration at all we'll have no integration at all but uh, uh, only complete separation if not we're not doing anything at all there'll be no separation at all we have to ask let's go for the politics of better than now not perfect better than now and here i want to adopt a beautiful drasha. Of Rabbi, uh, my Rabbi David Hartman, zichrono livracha. So Rabbi David Hartman had a Torah where it says, you know, it says in the Torah, v'achalta ve'savata uverachta. Okay, you eat, savata, you're full. You don't have to eat like a, a you know, a three course meal. You're satisfied and you're full. And um, and then you make a blessing. Thank you, God, for this great food, for this great tasty food. That's the Bible, that's the Torah. The Talmud in Masechet Brachot, in Traktat Brachot, says, How much do you have? What, what rabbis do in the Talmud is try to quantify things. So you ask, How much do you have to eat in order to make a blessing? And their answer is, The amount needs to be like an olive. <laughs> so in the ta- Torah, it says, You eat, you're full, and you make a blessing. The Talmud says, like an olive. So Hartman asked once, I remember him yelling, he's saying, has anyone here ever felt satisfied and full when he or she ate an olive? No. The Talmud is saying, even when you're not full and you're not satisfied, you still make a blessing. Biblical politics is about utopia. talmudic politics is about pragmatism. It's about, we make some progress, that's good enough. And if somebody says some progress is meaningless because it's not complete progress, well, Jews say a blessing on Kazayit. So we could have more separation here, more integration here, not perfect separation, not perfect integration, but better than now. Kazayit, let's make a blessing on that. That's the kind of thinking we have to train our minds when we think about shrinking
0: the conflict. um, Mira, wow, as I I always just say, wow, whenever you're done talking, I think what would be great now is to allow, you know, we have over 200 participants in this. Um, I would just invite people who have questions to just put a question in the in the in the chat, I'm going to start the first one that comes from Toby Rodman, and that way we can have we can move from your talk to to a dialogue. Toby Rodman asks, "Can you or Micha speak about expansion of Palestinian presence in Israeli-occupied land in Area C?" And let me just invite folks who want to engage Micha's really thoughtful uh, talk to just send a, a question into the chat, and then we'll have a dialogue. But but that that's the first question, Micha about expansion of Palestinian presence in Israeli-occupied land in Area C? Again, what's the question, Rabbi? Um, Can you speak about expansion of Palestinian presence in Israeli-occupied land in Area C? Is this a question about
1: the maneuver to shrink the conflict or about reality on the ground now?
0: I I think, all I know, Toby, if you want to add uh, your voice, you can. Um, I'm just offering the questions she put in, in the chat. And um, w- while she's doing that, and, and, and maybe refining the question, I was wondering if, you, if we could just zoom out for a second, but while people are thinking about their questions um, and giving them some time to, to marinate on your talk, could you just speak about the, how, how uh, the new coalition is working? Like we all know that there's this new coalition and uh, you know uh, that it's, it's the first non-BB led government in a while. For an American audience that's not living in Israel's day-to-day politics, could you just share a word about how that's going?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's very, very complicated. Listen, the probability of this government to work is impossible. It's very close to impossible. I'll tell you why. There's three factors that every one of them makes it impossible. Every one of them is weird. One, it's a government of 61, which means you have one MK jumps boat and they don't have a majority anywhere. That's one problem. Second problem, it's the most diverse government in Israeli history. It might be the most diverse government in the world. That might be an exaggeration. I can't imagine a government more diverse than this government in the world today. Diverse governments have a tendency not to work. Three, the government is led by a guy that has six mandates. <laughs> That's unprecedented. You take these three, every one of them would make a government not function. And here we have all three of them tied up together. A leader of six mandates is controlling the most diverse government in Israel's history with a margin error of 61. What are the chances of that working? None, and the amazing thing is it's working. It's working. They manage now through like to 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 shrink COVID without sabotaging the economy. Boom. All the up for the next challenge. Shrink occupation without sabotaging security. I don't know. But I love, I hope they like, I hope this is an interesting analogy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Two, they managed to pass a budget. And there's all these reforms they want to lead. And so we have here an improbable government. Impro- uh, it seems like impossible theoretically for this government to get stuff done and this government seems like it's going to actually get stuff done. So it's very, very interesting. I'm not, I want to overpromise, I'm not the representative of this government, but I think it's an improbable government that's managing to do stuff. So, so, and and the big question is, Rabbi, can I give a longer answer to your question or please, should we ask?
0: Please, please. Yeah, or, yeah You yeah. know what, M-
1: maybe I'll summarize in the, like, how much time do we have? We have, we have another 25 minutes. Okay. I want to give you another spiel. Okay? Okay. If that's okay. Please. Okay. What's the winning formula for this kind of a governance? How can a, here's a big question. How can a hybrid government not be a paralyzed government? So here's how I understand its possibility. It has to be a halachic government. Let me explain. Let me just go into shrink the conflict because it's a great, a, a great opportunity to explain something. Shrinking the conflict, which by the way, also the Peter Beinhart's where I'm attacked from the left and, and from, mostly from the left on this issue, something misunderstood. Here's the classic, classic critique. And I think also Beinhart is a part of that family of critique and is the following. Um, we increase Palestinian self-governance. Taking autonomous islands are not connected to each other, connecting them themselves connecting them to the world, Enable, enabling them to do planning and zoning, liberating their economy. So they have the, the freedom to move, the freedom to build, the freedom to prosper. Okay? It's not a real estate, but it's an autonomy. And they finally have what an Israeli journal called Giora Island calls, Masa kritit Shel leshirut. It's a great line, critical mass of self-governance. Right now, the PA doesn't have that. The Palestinian Authority doesn't have that after these three moves, I think we'll have that critical mass of self-governance. What does that do to us? So here's the thing. Some people say, well, if their amount of self-governance went up from 30 points to 70, we're one step away from a state. Let's just move from 70 to 100. So people on the left will say, let's do a shrieking the conflict move, increase Palestinian self-governance to 70, and then we're one step away from, from statehood. Great. But you know, some people believe in confederation with Jordan. And by the way, it's not a bad idea that Jordan is like a confederation or federation of two states, right? There's the Hashemite kingdom on one side of the river and the West Bank, a different state. So you guys have 50 states, Jordan will have two states, Hashemite and Palestine. Okay? Well, you know what? Once they have a real, real autonomy that really governs itself, it's a building block that fits into that end game, too. Yossi Bailey, remember Yossi Bailey? So he's an interesting, very interesting guy. He came up with a new idea, a confederation in Israel, where Israel is one country of two states. You know what? Once this autonomy is built, now it's not built yet. It's built. It fits into that end game, too. You see, this autonomy, once we build it, bottom up, it's a building block that fits into multiple end games, And by the way, it also fits into a, the Bibi Netanyahu endgame. Netanyahu spoke in his book, um, in English it was called A Place Among the Nations, I think. He has this vision, which is Begin's vision of um, a prosperous Palestinian autonomy and that's where it stops. So here's how it goes. This, once we have Palestinian political entity that enjoys critical mass of self-governance. It fits into many end games. Do we have to disagree agree right now on the end game? Well, here is a paradigm until now was like this. We'll agree on the end game and then we'll play the game. But the problem is because we can't agree on the end game, we're not playing any game. And that's another reason why this paradigm is freezing the status quo. Let's reverse it. Instead of agreeing on the end game, let's only agree on the game. Now, think about this hybrid governments. If your name is Gidon Saar and you're like a hardcore old school Likudnik, yes, or Naftali Bennett, you say we build this autonomy. It stops there. Begin Bibi. If you are Labor or Meretz, more on the left, you're saying we this autonomy. It will take us to a two-state. And if you're Yossi Berlian, take us to a confederation. And someone I always like confederation. So I think it's. I think Jordan is a good idea, by the way, but I don't know if it's possible. So. We don't have to agree now on the end game. We only have to agree on the game. And if I just uh, zoom out, this is the winning formula because it means we agree on actions. We don't agree on narratives. Um, I'll give you an example. So like, um, if you're on the left, you say, what are we doing? When we're increasing Palestinian self-governance. You say, my narrative is we're building the Palestinian state. If you're on the right, you say, well, we're building something that will replace the Palestinian state. Who's right? Who cares? We don't have to agree on the narrative. We have to agree only on the action. Let me give you like, like a, different, a different angle on this. In Israel, there is now an attempt to uh, privatize Kashrut. Now, I don't know if this will work, but if it will work, it's a very cool thing. It's a very cool thing. If we privatize Kashrut and the rabbit doesn't control the Kashrut, it could be an amazing thing. Okay. So let's say you ask people, like on labor, what do you think about privatization of the Kashrut system? Well, that's great. That's so important because it's, it's one step towards higher degrees of separation between church and synagogue and state in Israel. It's a step to make Israel more secular. If you'll ask people on the like, religious right that are for this, like Matan Kahana, maybe he'll say, this will make Israelis more religious because their allergic reaction to the rabbinate will, you know, calm down. And then they'll love Judaism more. And i will probably, you know what? It also makes, food is also probably even more kosher, not less kosher. So you ask Matan Kahana, why you're doing privatization of Kashrut, he'll say, we will make Israel more Jewish. You ask someone on the left, like Nitzan, what do you think about this? He might say, will make Israel more secular. They have different narratives, but they agree on the same Action. That's the formula on shrinking the conflict on religion and state. We have the we agree on actions, not on narratives. Let me just I'll try to explain why this is a powerful formula. First of all, I think it's the only formula that a hybrid government does not become a paralyzed government. Let's not agree on stories, only on actions. Pluralism of narratives, but, but 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 agreement on actions. That's one. And two, think about the difference between the Catholic Church and our Jewish tradition. Think about the following. You're interviewing the Ariya Kadosh, the great mystic from Tzfat in the 16th century, and Maimonides, the rational philosopher from the Middle Ages. They're both putting on their, you know, how do you say tefillin in English? You're you're muted, Rabbi? Phylacteries. Phylacteries? Phylacteries. But do American Jews know the word? Tefillin is a word, right? They don't know tefillin or phylacteries. that was a right. critique okay so he put on the thing okay and he asked Ram. he asked the Ariya Kados, what are you doing he's saying you know in the divine world there's this spiro there's like this divine energies when i'm putting on the tefillin i'm uniting the spiro that's what i'm doing you tell the Ram, you know the Ari just told me that when he puts on the tefillin he's uniting like divine forces what do you think about that rambam would have a rage attack he would saying that narrative is false it's idol worshiping, it's irrational, I'm only rational. Or I believe when I put on the I'm practicing a certain therapy where I'm practicing self-resistance or whatever it is. So one person thinks by putting on the he's changing God. That's the Kabbalist. The rational is saying he's doing, he's changing himself. Who's right? What's the answer of Jewish tradition? Who cares? The only thing we care is what? What you do, not what you the way you interpret what you do. Now, in the Catholic tradition, which as you know, Rabbi, I'm somehow <laughs> connected to in the Catholic tradition, narratives are all there is a there's a credo. There's a there's a credo. You have to believe in a narrative. If you don't believe in the narrative, you're a heretic. So do we are we doing Catholic politics or halakhic politics? I'm for halachic politics. Pluralism of narratives and agreement on actions. When it comes to kashrut, when it comes to the conflict, we can live in different narratives and agree on actions.
0: So I want to thank you, Michal. I I want to just name a dynamic that's happening in this call, which is it focus on different narratives as well. If you look at the chat room, um, a lot of the I mean, you're speaking at a beautiful level of Torah and ideas, which is very powerful. Um, And a lot of the questions are at a different narrative, which is facts on the ground. So for example, I'll I'll just read you a couple of them. And I'm wondering if you could both address, so the idea is how your, the, the subject today is how your ideas about shrinking the conflict land on an audience of American Jews who dearly love Israel, and who also dearly love the human rights of all of its citizens, right? And how do your really important ideas land on our audience? And what's interesting just to note is, um, you know, that a lot of the response of the people in the chat room is focused on what does this mean on the ground? So for example, I'll just read Ahava Rosenthal's and then Steve Gildas, because they're of a piece. How can you give Palestinians autonomy to plan and zone when you are still allowing settlers to build outside current settlement blocks, just not encourage it. One could say that that is how we got to this point in the first place, quietly establishing more facts on the ground. Um, So again, it's kind of a, you know, you're talking about the and the reasons we're putting out to fill in a narrative. And then we're talking about uh, the American audience here was thinking about facts on the ground. Let me just read Steve Gelda's as well. Using your COVID analogy, open the economy imperfectly, accept risk of increased infection spread. Wouldn't an Israeli government need to accept some increased risk to Israeli security if it significantly shrinks control of Palestinians? We call the extent of technological control over the occupation has over the Palestinian population. Some of this would erode with increased Palestinian autonomy. So I guess what I'm saying to you is that the, the questions are asking on the ground type questions. And if you could speak to, to the, uh, the merit of those questions and just in general, these different narratives.
1: Yes, first of all, these are very important questions. And these are, this is the kind of conversation we should, we should have on the ground. And by the way, I love the question, like, okay, we do take risks on, 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 on we're willing to take some health risks to liberate the economy, right? We don't not locking anyone in their homes and people are still, and people are going to die because of because we're not that willing to take to, to we wanna open the economy. That's a great question. Yes. Um, would I personally be willing to risk some level of security in order to have more Palestinian liberty? Yes, I would. How much? Not much. It's a question. It's a quantitative question. And it's an important conversation to have. It's a point conversation to have. Um, but, um, I think, by the way, Wes, your question is very important because if shrinking the conflict, like from the top, as a, just as a thought construct generates questions about what's happening, you know, on the ground, that's the entire point. How can an idea unleash new awareness and new questions? That what's happening on the ground, as I opened, Wes, the whole idea of shrinking the conflict is not to shrink our interest, it's to increase our interest, and it used to be the following, it used to be the following. Any idea you offer, any idea, people would say, does that end the conflict? No. So the idea is not interesting. The bar was so high that every idea was knocked off the table, and they were stuck with no ideas. Now the bar is low, we have to ask a different <laughs> question. Now does it end the conflict? Does it shrink it? Oh, put it differently. Doesn't make things better than the way we, they are today. People are people gonna suffer less than they are today? And the bar is so low that so many new ideas can come back in the table. And finally, we have a table and ideas and conversation.
0: Mira, could you talk about one thing that, that hasn't been part of the conversation yet and is not at particularly in the chat room, but I'm curious about what is the reaction of Palestinians to your shrinking the conflict idea? And what does the reaction need to be for this thing to move forward? Okay.
1: I don't want to, I just want to say, there's two types of reactions, right? When, when I try to summarize all the types of reactions, there's two types. And I even said this to some Palestinians and they left. So I'm letting myself say this to you. There's Marxists and there are Zionists. You now they all hate Zionism. This is just me using Zionism as a pattern of thinking. Carl, I'll start with Marx. Karl Marx argued, that we sh- that capitalism is so corrupt and so filled with internal contradictions that capitalism is going to collapse. It's determined to collapse. It's not that we have to push it towards collapsing. It's going to collapse. There's no. That's how. That's where history is moving. And when the old capitalist system collapses. On its ruins, we will have a revolution and complete equality, solidarity, and a beautiful utopian world. That's Marx. So Marx was against fixing capitalism. Like, like the question: Should there be boundaries on avodat uh, eladim um, on um, child labor. child labor? Marx would say no boundaries. Um, should there be minimum wage? No minimum wage. Because all those are social laws that are there to make capitalism more bearable. And because it fixes capitalism, it doesn't let capitalism collapse into its own um, um, lack of coherency. So don't fix capitalism. Like Karl Marx would vote for Margaret Thatcher and for Ronald Reagan and for Bibi Netanyahu. Anyone that says that doesn't, or even worse. Why? Because he believes that if capitalism is left alone and not fixed, it will collapse. So make things very bad and only then they can be very good. As an analogy, many Palestinians are thinking like Marxists. Only if the occupation is horrible, will it collapse. Fixing the occupation means internalizing the occupation. I think it's a very interesting idea. I find like this Marxist way of thinking, yes, any attempt, to fix capital so to fix capitalism blocks the collapse of capitalism and therefore don't fix it let it happen and let it collapse that was Marx and that's many Palestinians are Marxists yeah don't fix the occupation it will collapse and then we'll have okay that was, that's one way a different way of thinking how we a theory of change is a Zionist theory of change by the way I'm using not these are not categories of Palestinians it's just me trying to explain to you my understanding of Palestinians David Ben Gurion in 1937 was offered a completely distorted and crippled Jewish state in 1937. A Jewish state which is so small, it was the Peel Committee in 1937. It was on 25% of the land of Israel today. People said, We can't do that. David Ben Gurion said, Give it to me. Because his thing is, I'll take what I could get and I'll build from there. Whatever we could get. Will take and will build. His paradigm, as opposed to a Marxist, is we don't need things to collapse in order to be replaced. We need things to be built, right? And anything we can take, we take, we get stronger, we build more. There was a great line that that his disciples used to use: odunam odes, another acre, another goat, any achievement. We're going to build this country bottom up. It's not going to collapse and be replaced. It's going to be built bottom up. Those are two paradigms, Marxist and Zionist. I find that among the Palestinians, there's many Marxists. There's many young Palestinians, there's Zionists. Now, I said this to him, to a friend. He says to me, we need to imitate Zionism to destroy it. (laughs) <laughs> so great that's the that's the sphere right that's like so the zionist palestinians are the palestinians that that would adopt or that i, that I know that some of them feel like okay this is how we start building us bottom up the marxist obviously against now to your next question who's more dominant well first of all this is just my my attempt to categorize the Palestinians categorize themselves differently using different words, using, and classically it's Hamas, Fatah, it's a different. But I think the best, the most, um, like people, I just want to, Israelis and Jews in general, we like to divide the Palestinians between the ones who are more nice to us and the ones who are less, less nice to us. The ones who are more violent, the ones who are more peaceful. That's a very Israeli-centered way to think about Palestinians. Like, what do they think about me? I think a more constructive way is what they think about their own vision, their own future. And that's where I came up with the Marxists versus Zionists. Uh, And um, to your next question, I don't know how many Zionists we have, how many Marxists we have, but the Zionists, the ones that want to build, as somebody told me, I want to build Palestine, not to liberate Palestine. Yes, that was, those are the ones that hopefully with them, we might have an interesting future.
0: Wow. And just to to close this off, and then I want to hand it over to to Amy, um, can you just tell us, like on the ground, because you are in Israel and we're not, is there actually anything happening with a shrinking the conflict dialogue or conversation between Israelis and Palestinians who are open to the idea? Is anything actually happening?
1: Well, first of all, if on the government level, things are happening, I don't know. Um, I'm having for years interesting conversations with Palestinians. Just, and I'm learning a lot. For me, I had some conversations where, like, I came out like so insightful, so insightful, and uh, it's really fascinating. The thing is, Palestinians are always—they're um, very afraid to be exposed. They're very afraid. It's. It's um, you know, Natan Sharansky has a definition of what is a fr- open society. He has like, there's only one way to know if a society is open. People who are afraid when they speak out. If they're afraid, you know it's not an open society. So sadly, Palestinians are I speak to you always seem afraid. They always seem afraid. So um, so uh, I so anyway, I think I think see, let me say something just more general. It's very hard to predict what's gonna happen in Palestinian society. Because Israel is not going through a transition. It's a post-BB Israel. And how does a post-BB Israel look like? We don't really know yet. I think part of what we're doing is trying to figure out what is a vision for post-Israel BB. A hybrid government side a paralyzed government, I think a pluralism of narratives, but agreement on actions. I think maybe that's I'm just trying to articulate. How does a post-BB Israel look, politics look like? The Palestinians even start their transition to a post Abbas politics, and I've, we don't even know how the transition will look like. We don't know who will we. we you know how for years are saying, Bibi's years are probably going to like." We're always thinking it's around the corner. For years it took, right? And by the way, he might come back, you know, because he's, you know, he's probably the best political chess player in the world. People like to say that about him. Um, in the Palestinian world, not only that we don't know who's replacement of Abbas, we don't even know what the procedure of replacement is. I won't go into it, but there is a procedure that's blocked. It seems like, according to their constitution, when the leader di- if the leader dies or, or or is dysfunctional, the power moves to the head of parliament. Well, they don't really have a parliament, and if they have a parliament, the other problem is I call it Aziz Duwek, which is a Hamas Hamasnik to think that the people of Fatah now in control will move the power to a Hamas guy and trust him to take them to free elections it's ridiculous so they probably won't move the power to him and as a, as a result they'll have a very very serious constitutional breakdown anyway it's very hard to predict i would say that chaos is not is not a bad prediction so it's very hard to predict we know that Abbas, we don't know when Abbas is going, and we don't know what's going to happen when he goes. So there is a lot, a lot of lack of certainty on the Palestinian side. On the Israeli side, we're starting to build a post-BB Israel, which I think is a very interesting, fascinating project.
0: So, Micha, I want to just end by two things. One, thanking you for giving us so much time, so much energy, so much wisdom, and so much to think about. You've been teaching Temple Emanuel since 2010. This is your 11th year. And we are just, we all love Israel so much, you know, in different ways, we don't agree of course, but what we share is a deep love of Israel. And your Torah speaks to all 205 of us who are on this call in different ways. Thank you for giving us so much to think about. I wanna end the call by just uh, saying to our folks, we are going to Israel this June. Hartman is gonna be in person this June. I will be there. Amy and Brian will be there. And uh, June 22nd to June 29th. uh, And there is just nothing better in the world than being in Israel with our fellow congregants and learning from Micha, learning from Hartman. So I hope all of you will give serious thought June 22nd, June 29th to engage Israel's um, beautiful place and to engage these complicated issues together in Eretz Israel. Micha, thank you. Amy Klein, last words.
1: Thank you, Micha. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. And uh, come back Sunday, December 12th. We'll be with Rabbi Gordon Tucker in our next Hartman session. And I want to echo what Wes just said. Come with us to Israel this summer. Watch the Friday newsletter, Hartman at Home. And look for details there and let us know if you're even thinking about joining us this summer, because what could be better than learning with Micha again in Israel, under the stars, in Jerusalem um, this summer. It'll be our 10th trip and hopefully you'll join us. Thank you, thank Thank you you all for being here today, Micha. Thank you,
0: everyone. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.